Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead, and Happy New Year to all the listeners. I'm sorry it's been a little while since we put out another show. I spent most of the fall on the road, and I had time to go on a few other podcasts, as those of you following us on SoundCloud would have noticed. But uh, I didn't have a lot of time to do interviews and commentary, and I mostly stuck to uh, written columns on The Bridgehead. But in 2018, I, I want to ensure that we're being a lot more regular, and so I wanted to start this year off uh, with something less depressing than I usually talk about. I've had a lot of people say, you know, Jonathan, you, you manage to talk about our culture and our society's vices all of the time, but we need something to contrast to that. We need to look at both the good and the bad. So I thought that over the next couple of months, interspersed uh, between the interviews and the commentary I'll do that sort of shine a light on the darkest places in society, that I can also take a look uh, at the virtues and, and those great virtues that have also uh, been shown in the lives of heroic men and women of the past. And so the interview uh, that I did uh, for the very first show of 2018 is an interview that uh, I've been wanting to do for a very long time. I was genuinely thrilled to get this interview. It's an interview with a man named Woody Williams. Uh, Woody Williams is actually one of the last surviving World War II veterans and Medal of Honor winners. As many of you will know, obviously, uh, there are not that many World War II veterans still with us. And the story of Woody Williams is just quite frankly extraordinary. Uh, he actually witnessed the raising of the American flag over Iwo Jima. Many of you will recognize that very iconic image of the soldiers struggling to raise that flag. And he won the Medal of Honor for his actions on Iwo Jima. He was born on October 2, 1923. And first he was uh, sent to Guadalcanal when World War II uh, began. Then he was sent to Guam where he participated in the Battle of Guam. And the Medal of Honor was awarded to him for his final campaign at Iwo Jima, uh, where he distinguished himself with actions, quote, above and beyond the call of duty. And I don't want to tell too much of the story because, of course, that's why we had uh, Mr. Williams on. But Williams went forward alone with a 70-pound flamethrower uh, to reduce the devastating machine gun fire from the Japanese pillboxes. And there are some commentators and biographers who actually say that his actions may have changed the course of American history because those deeply fortified Japanese pillboxes on the island of Iwo Jima were nearly impenetrable. And there were over a thousand men that were waiting to break through to take the airfield, but they couldn't get through. They couldn't actually get those pillboxes to surrender. And so, finally, Woody Williams was the last flamethrower standing. You have to realize here, as you listen to Mr. Williams' story, that flamethrowers had a survival rate of 14%. Only 14% of flamethrowers actually survived. But Woody Williams went in there with his flamethrower for four and a half hours while four American uh, Marines defended him, covered him, uh, opened fire on the pillboxes to allow him to get close enough while he operated six different flamethrowers. Uh, he broke that line of defense and allowed almost a thousand guys, almost an entire battalion, to get moving towards 
that airfield. And actually two of the four Marines who protected Woody Williams from the enemy that day were struck down and killed. He often said that he wore that medal for them. One of the reasons that I wanted to uh, specifically talk to, to Woody Williams, because obviously the military is filled with extraordinarily brave and extraordinarily courageous men, uh, is because Woody Williams, after struggling with post-traumatic stress due to uh, what he had done on the battlefield and due to the things that he saw on the battlefield, due to the smell of burning flesh that haunted him for years afterwards, was that he turned to his Christian faith in order to find hope, and he now spends his life advocating to live a life of service. And although, obviously, uh, those of us living far more ordinary lives than the extraordinary things that Woody Williams, as a Medal of Honor winner, accomplished that day uh, during the Battle of Iwo Jima, we can all learn something from his courage, we can learn something from his example, and we can learn something uh, from what he advocates that all of us do. So for the first interview, for the first show of 2018, I want to present a conversation with Medal of Honor winner and World War II veteran Woody Williams. I hope that you're inspired by his story, uh, and I hope uh, that you can keep in mind that there are very few uh, of these noble veterans. There are very few of the veterans of the last, uh, the greatest generation, as Tom Brokaw called them, that we can still listen to, that we can still speak with. So I hope you value his story and his testimony that much more. So uh, first, maybe just tell our, our listeners a little bit about how you grew up. Okay. Well, I was born and raised on a country dairy farm. Okay. We, we had... Uh, Mostly milk cows that we uh, would ex would extract the milk and bottle it in glass pint and quart bottles, and uh, of course we had uh, an ice box. We did not have refrigeration, but we had ice box, so we'd always we'd have to bring ice back with us from town every day on our way back from delivering the milk to individual customers in the city, which was seven miles away from our farm. Okay. And uh, my father started that when I was about five years old. So we milked by hand. There were no such thing as automatic milkers back in those days. And uh, we delivered the milk and other produce, people would want eggs or a chicken for Thanksgiving or whatever. <clears throat> and we did have a country telephone. It was one of those that uh, is operated from a switchboard. They would call a switchboard, which was run by a lady, and then she would direct the calls to uh, whoever uh, they were trying to reach. And so that the people on the route where we delivered the milk and groceries uh, would call and order whatever they needed. And during uh, the times of holidays like uh, Memorial Day, Easter, uh, July, and uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas, everybody increased their orders because families were coming in to be a part of the festivities for that day 
and that was very common back in my day. They would all gather at one place. Okay. And and it wasn't very far because very few people had cars. Right, right. So you had to walk wherever you went. We did have, we started out with a Model A Ford, and then uh, I could just barely remember it, but then we got a Model T Ford. Right. Which was... Uh, a real high-class automobile or or pickup at that time. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how I grew up, and uh, my mother was still running the farm. My father died when I was 11 <clears throat> from a heart attack, and uh, my mother continued to run the farm until World War II came along. Right. And they began drafting people for the military services, and we were in a very small community. There were a very limited number of people available to work. So once they started drafting, she was unable to find workers to help with the farm work, and eventually she had to sell the farm. While we were in the military, I had two brothers that were drafted prior to the time that I entered the Marine Corps. They went, both went to the Army, and they both ended up in Europe. And you, ended up in the Pacific. How old were you when you joined the Marine Corps? Uh, well, I was, I'll answer your question a little more. I was in the Civilian Conservation Corps at 16 years old. The, the farm was going downhill at that time. That was in uh, really 1940. And the farm was going downhill. Uh, I had one brother uh, next to me. He joined the Civilian Conservation Corps because there was just no money. We had no income, uh, hardly at all. And uh, when we joined the CCCs, we called it, you got $21 a month. And that was a lot of money. So he would get to come home once in a while and... He would always have a little bit of money. So I decided that might be a way I could get some money. So I decided to join the Civilian Conservation Corps also. I was only 16. My mother was terribly unhappy, but at that point we did not need parent consent at 16. Uh-huh. We could go ahead and go. So I entered the Civilian Conservation Corps at 16, ended up out in a place called Whitehall, Montana. And that's where I was when Pearl Harbor was bombed. Right. In uh, December 41. I'd been in about that, I'd been in for about a year and a half at that time. I was still 17 years old, hadn't reached my 18th birthday. But they sort of offered us an option the Civilian Conservation Corps were run by the Army. Our person in charge of our base was an Army officer, and he had Army personnel assisting him, like a mess sergeant and a first sergeant and that sort of thing. And they offered us the opportunity of going straight into the Army if we wanted to, provided we were over 18. If we were under 18, we had to have parent consent. My mother would not agree to that. She would not 
give me the consent to go. So I came, I came home from the Civilian Conservation Corps, and as soon as my 18th birthday arrived, one month later, I went in to go in the Marine Corps. Uh, I wanted to go in the Marine Corps to be absolutely truthful and factual because I liked the Marine Corps uniform, and I <laughs> thought that Army uniform was the ugliest thing in town. <laughs> so I didn't want to wear that, but uh, when I tried to enlist in November '42. They refused me because I was too short. They had a height requirement at that time of 5'8 or better. Okay. And I was only 5'6. Right. So they wouldn't take me. And uh, so I went back to help my mother on the farm after that. And then a few months later, they took the height requirement off because they realized, somebody realized they were going to need an awful lot of people. And uh, the recruiter looked me up and asked me if I still wanted to be a Marine, and I said yes. So in May of 1943, well, they accepted me. And after the training, where did you uh, head off first? I was sent from West Virginia to California, which was most unusual. Almost everybody east of the Mississippi was to go to Paris Island, South Carolina, which was the only, they only had two uh, Marine Corps training bases, one in San Diego and one in Paris Island. And I should have gone to Paris Island, but there were so many people going in so rapidly the Marine Corps at Paris Island could not find enough qualified drill instructors and uh, housing to take care of everybody, so they began shipping by train people from the East Coast to the West Coast. So I ended up in California taking my boot training out there. Once I finished that and then about three months of uh, infantry-type training, I went overseas. And overseas, if I'm not mistaken, you went to Guadalcanal first? Uh, I went to a place called New Caledonia first. Uh, it was a replacement center where Marines went in. They weren't assigned yet to a specific organization. They called them replacement people. And there they decided where they would send them to the most need. Right. So uh, while at New Caledonia... A group of us was assigned to go to Bougainville, where the Marines were fighting the Japanese at that particular time, to fill in the slots where people had been wounded and killed. And we had to do that by the way of Guadalcanal. And so we landed on Guadalcanal, preparing to go to Bougainville, and the Marines in Bougainville secured the island got rid of the majority of the Japanese, and then they came to Guadalcanal, and that's where I joined the outfit. So I didn't have anything to do with the Battle of Guadalcanal. That had happened in 1942. Right, and then after Guadalcanal, uh, it was the Battle of Guam. That's correct. We stayed there for six months, <clears throat> then in June shipped out, and we shipped out basically to be support to the 2nd Marine Division, we were the 3rd, 
to the second marine division who was atta- who was attacking Saipan, and we were out in the ocean waiting in the event they needed additional marines. They didn't, so we then were scheduled to go to Guam in July. What do you remember of that? Say again, sir. I said, what do you remember of that? Well, of course, that was my first combat, and uh, we had had little training uh, at all as to how how to hit an island or how to land on an island and what to do once you got there. Right. Because most of our individuals, other than those that had been at Bougainville, uh, they were non non combat Marines. They hadn't been in combat either, so. Uh, very few people knew really what was going to happen, but when we uh, hit the beach at uh, at Guam, probably was one of the most scary moments of my time. Uh, we had to get off of the boat out in the water. The water went very deep, uh, knee high to waist high, but we had to get off the boat into the water because the boat hit the sandbar, and uh, then we had to wade ashore. And, of course, the Japanese were shooting at us at that time and dropping mortars on us, and it was uh, first combat experience, so it was a very scary period of time. But once we got ashore, uh, where we could get some ground under us and we could start digging a foxhole or get behind something for some protection, why, we adjusted. And then the campaign that, of course, um, that you're most famous for is the campaign at Iwo Jima, where where you were distinguished with actions, quote, above and beyond the call of duty. And, and if I'm not mistaken, you landed on the beach with the 1st Battalion, 21st Marines, on February 21, 1945. Could you tell us that story? Yeah. Uh I'll back up just a little. When we left Guam Mm -hmm. to go to Iwo Jima, we we had no idea where we were going. They didn't tell us where we were going until we got out into the ocean. And, of course, communications were... There were no communications, so you couldn't tell anybody where you were going. But uh, they did tell us while we were uh, aboard the ship headed for Iwo Jima that that's where we were going to go. And they... Had a little board that they produced showing the outline of the what the island looked like and uh, its size. Uh, they had told us or did tell us that it was two and a half miles wide, five miles long. Uh, we had just gone from 19 miles from coastline to coastline on Guam, and the guys including me, the guys around me, the people I was most closely with, my squad, we couldn't figure out why such a little place. Why would we go take such a little place? Uh, That couldn't be (laughs) just only two and a half miles by five. Couldn't be much of anything. And uh, they told us that we would be a reserve unit, probably never get off ship, and we'd probably be gone about five days, and then we'd go back to Guam, back to our tents, because they didn't have any intelligence about Iwo. They didn't know they had some 22,000 soldiers there. 
They didn't know they had all those miles of tunnels. None, none of that information was available even to the high uh, people, people in high position. <clears throat> so on the 19th, when the other two divisions hit the island, we were way out in the ocean. We couldn't see anything, couldn't hear anything. Occasionally we'd see an airplane go by, but uh, that that was it. And uh, thinking, of course, we're not going we're not going to get off ship. Well, the first night, they uh, came over the loudspeaker about midnight because of the number of people that they had lost that first day. Uh, prepare because we're going to disembark. And uh, so we had chow at 3 o'clock in the morning, got all of our gear together, and got off the ship before daylight. Headed, we thought, to the island. And we got out into the ocean. The uh, 4th and 5th Marine Division at that point had not been able to capture enough ground to permit us to come in. We had no place to go if we'd have gone. So we rode those boats all day and then went back to ship that night and uh, uh, had another 3 o'clock or 3 a.m. breakfast. And the next day, uh, they had been able to move or capture some ground, and the 4th Marine Division had been able to take Mount Suribachi by that time. So they had enough ground for us to come in, and we went in then on the 21st. And uh, on the 23rd, uh, we were still fighting the airfield, the first airfield. Uh, around that place, they had... Uh, pillboxes, or we called them pillboxes. Today, the military uses the term bunkers instead of pillboxes. <laughs> but we called them pillboxes, and they had a whole number of those protecting the airfield. And as we would try to advance, they had all the advantage. They're inside of a concrete structure. We're out in the open, running from one position to another, and so we were we were a great target. Consequently, we kept losing uh, Marines very rapidly and uh, <clears throat> could not break through those uh, pillboxes to continue to advance. Every time we'd try, they'd, they would uh, kill a group of us, and we'd have to retreat. Uh, I've used the term many times in my life. The one, of, the one that Chesty Puller used on uh, Korea, uh, we never withdraw, we never retreat, we just, we just advance to the rear. All right. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, what we did. We advanced to the rear. But uh, uh, I had six Marines under me when we uh, landed. And uh, we were all flamethrower demolition trained. We could either burn it up or blow it up. <clears throat> and my job as the person in charge of the unit uh, was to make sure that the operators, the demolition guys and the flamethrower guys, had whatever they needed to function whenever they were needed by the command that they were serving under. 
and by the 23rd, why uh, those those men, those Marines were gone. I've never known whether they were wounded or killed. That information never did come to me, so I don't know. But uh, I was the last flamethrower demolition guy in my company, uh, C Company. So that's how I got the job of eliminating some of the pillboxes. And what was what was that like? You talked about your first combat experience and how terrifying it was. Reading the account of, of what you did on Iwo Jima sounds far more terrifying because you were only covered by four riflemen. You fought for four hours under under uh, enemy small arms fire, and you continually went back to your own lines to prepare more demolition charges and get new flamethrowers and then go back to the pillboxes. Do I have that right? Yes, you do. Yeah. I was able to actually eliminate the enemy in seven of those pillboxes. We couldn't do anything with the pillboxes. They were built so strong with uh, some form of concrete that they had and and uh, metal rods. We call it rebar today in America. <clears throat> metal rods in it. So artillery and bazookas, it didn't do anything to them. And uh, so... They were fully protected, and they had an aperture across the front of every pillbox. It was about eight inches in height, and that's where they could stick their rifles out and their machine guns out. Uh, That was the only place we could hit. If we were able to hit an enemy, we would have to shoot through that aperture in order to get them. And uh, trying to do that from several yards away, not very effective. So they had all the advantage. And I don't know that I, uh, I'd had some experience, so I think my experience helped me uh, eliminate some of the fear that I probably would have had if this had been the first time I (laughs) I did that. Uh But... uh, Much of that day, uh, I do not remember, and it's one of those things that I've lived with all my life, or ever since I came back from the Marine Corps, of how really did I do it, and why wasn't I wounded or or hit in some way with shrapnel or bullets or something, uh, in the four hours, they never touched me. Right. But some of those pillboxes are absolutely not in my memory bank at all. I can remember a couple of them very vividly. But uh, one of the things that has absolutely bugged me, still does, I've talked to a number of people why it is true, and I don't really have a good or haven't been able to get a good, solid answer of how did I get the other five flamethrowers. Now, I remember the first one very well, of taking off those four Marines. They were assigned to me, and I remember placing them in a position where they could shoot at the pillbox that I am going to approach. But how I got the additional flamethrowers... Yeah, it's one of those things that has never been in my memory bank. 
Right. And I, I don't understand that, never have. Uh, I've talked to some psychologists, and they don't have a good explanation either. But uh, uh, I don't I don't have any memory of that. Do you remember, uh, in the record, it says that at one point there was a wisp of smoke that alerted you to the air vent of one Japanese bunker, and you managed to get close enough to put the nozzle of your flamethrower there um, and, and kill the occupants of that bunker. Do you have any memory of that? I do. Now, that's one of them that I certainly do remember. Uh, I think I think the thing that probably generated my memory or enabled me to continue uh, that memory was I was trying to get to that particular pillbox, and you don't, with 70 pounds on your back, you don't get up and walk around very much. You, you particularly uh, in danger, you crawl on the ground make yourself as little target as you possibly can. So I was crawling toward that pillbox in a ditch that the Japanese had dug to enable them to go from one pillbox to another without getting above ground. They could, <clears throat> they could get in that ditch and crawl from one pillbox to another and you couldn't see them. So I was in their ditch crawling toward that pillbox. And they were shooting at me with a uh, Nambu machine gun. And uh, I remember the uh, bullets ricocheting off of the back of my flamethrower. And, wow. and at that, somewhere in that point of time, uh, I saw the smoke coming out of the top of that pillbox. And uh, so at a point in time when they were either reloading the machine gun or run out of bullets or whatever, uh, I jumped up, jumped up and ran to the side to get out of their line of fire. And that's when I decided I'd go up on top of the pillbox and see where that smoke's coming from because if there's a hole up there, I can put flame down through it. Right. And so that's what I did. That one I remember very well. And on another occasion, apparently, and this for me, when I was reading the account, seems the most obviously terrifying. You were actually charged by enemy riflemen with bayonets. Yes. Uh, I was trying to get to a pillbox. Uh, here again, I'm crawling. I'm not in a ditch, but I'm crawling. And uh, I get pretty close. I had to get within 20... 20 yards, no more than 20 yards, and, and uh, that was about a max that, that I could get the flame, or that the flame would go that far without dispersing, because once it hit the air, uh, it was a high-octane gasoline and a diesel-fuel mixture that my gunnery sergeant had come up with, and once it hit the air, it would fan out into a huge ball a flame, and it would only go so far because of the wind resistance or the air resistance. So I had to get within somewhere around 20 yards in order to roll it on the ground instead of shooting it in the air. If you shot it in the air, it wouldn't go anywhere. But roll it on the ground in a great big ball of about three seconds of flame, and it would roll for several yards 
into a pillbox, and when it hit it, it was huge. It was 10 or 12 feet in diameter, so it would just penetrate whatever opening was in that pillbox, and that's what I was trying to do. When uh, they came charging out, uh, never knew whether they were out of ammunition uh, or they just decided to, the way to get me is several of them come with bayonets and get me. But uh, I still had flame left. I still had fuel left. So when they came around the pillbox charging at me, well, I, I just hit them with a whole big ball of flame. And it uh, doesn't burn the bodies up. It catches the clothes on fire, but it takes all the oxygen out of the air immediately, and they die. After those four hours... You actually witnessed the flags being raised on Mount Suribaki, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. That really was prior to uh, the time that I had knocked out the pillboxes. We were still at that point, when the flag went up on Iwo, we were still at the edge of the airport trying to get across, or not the airport, but the airfield, Mm -hmm. uh, trying to get across that airfield. And... That was prior to the time that we had gotten across, and we didn't encounter the pillboxes until we got uh, over the or through or past the airfield. That's that's where they had constructed them. Uh, something I have in writing from somebody that says totally on Iwo, he had constructed 800 pillboxes. 800. 800. And uh, these were very close together. They were, I've always said, kind of self-protecting each other because it made them in such a way that if you went at one, then one or the other of the three in the in the area or the pod or whatever we want to call it could see you. So he he built them that way so that uh, they wouldn't be isolated. If you went at one then one of the other pillboxes on one of the other sides of that one could see you approaching. So, uh, and he did that. Of course, that guy was well-educated in in United States uh, strategy. Yes, yes. Yeah, he'd gone to our schools and visited our bases, and, I mean, he, he knew what we were all about, and he knew we were coming long before we got there. And then, for you, the war lasted another five weeks yet, correct? Yes. Uh, On March uh, 6, I hadn't been touched to that point, and we were in the advance. We were trying to progress to get to the other end of the island and and, uh, eliminate in the left leg. Never knew whether it was ours or theirs, but uh, that was the only wound that I got. And the corpsman, when he came to me and took care of me, uh, he thought it was bad enough that I should be evacuated. And uh, they put a tag on you so that the uh, uh, people coming to help you get back to... uh, the rear or to the aid station uh, will know who you are and that you're supposed to be 
taken back. <clears throat> he put one of those tags on me and uh, told me that I had to had to go back to the aid station. And uh, I uh, said, I'm not going to go. Uh, he wasn't very uh, very happy about that, but uh, he said very forcefully, you're tagged, you must go. Of course, we'd been told that prior to time getting into combat. The corpsman, you, whatever the corpsman says is law. Uh-huh. Whatever he tells you to do, you got to do. But uh, he said, you got a tag on you, you got to go. Well, I tore the tag off, and I said, I don't have a tag on me. So. <laughs> <laughs> and he got a call to go someplace else, so he didn't have a chance to put a second one on me. So I stayed. But uh, it wasn't bad enough that I couldn't couldn't continue to fight. And we were down to so few Marines. We needed everybody we could get. We, uh, the day before that, we were down to 17 in our company. 17. So we needed we needed people. What was it like in October uh, of 1945, finding out that you were going to meet the President of the United States and get presented the Medal of Honor? Well, it was to a little old country boy that was very shy and bashful and backward and uh, never been exposed to anything like that. It was really, I don't want to say scared, but certainly nerve-wracking. After all you went through on Iwo Jima, that was nerve-wracking. That was nerve-wracking, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, as a corporal, you don't, you know, as a corporal, you don't get ordered to the uh, to the general's tent unless there's something pretty serious going on. And that was my first nervousness. Uh, my first sergeant called me to his office and he said, uh, "Iron your." All we had over there was dungarees and khakis, and uh, said, "Iron your khakis. Uh, you going? To, uh, they want you to go to the general's tent." And I said, "What for?" And he said, "I don't know. I just got a telephone call. And said you're to go to the general's tent." Well, I'm a corporal. Right. Which Why which general was this? Huh? Which general? Yeah. Yeah. This was on Guam, right after the. Uh, this was in early September, right after the bomb dropping in August. And I couldn't figure out why in the world a little old corporal like like me was ordered to the tent, general's tent. <clears throat> but you follow orders. and So I went back to my tent, got out my iron and ironed my khaki so I'd look as sharp as I possibly could. And they picked me up in a jeep and took me up to the general's. I had never even been close to that place. In fact, I didn't even know where it was. Right. And uh, had a little uh, driver that drove me up there in the Jeep. And when I got there, the aide to the colonel, who or aide to the general, who was a colonel, met us and gave me some some instructions. Said, uh, you know, you're going to walk into his tent. When you get in there, walk up to his desk, stand at attention until he tells you what to do. And uh, as a corporal, uh, 
we were taught you don't question the colonel. Whatever the colonel says, that's that's what you're to do. You know, I'd say, well, why am I doing this? You, you, that's just something we didn't do. Uh-huh. So uh, I walked in, and, of course, I'm absolutely scared, frightened. And he told me stand at ease, and he used some words. I don't remember what they were. But uh, uh, I assumed, <laughs> have always assumed, they were kind of a congratulations and uh, you're going back to Washington. And whether he used the word Medal of Honor, I don't know because I had never heard the term. I did not know it existed. So if he used the word, it had no meaning to me whatsoever. Uh I've used the comparison uh, 10 years ago if you would have said to me cyberspace or gigabyte (laughs) or megabyte. Totally, totally unheard of words. Yeah, yeah. Never a thing in the world. I still don't know what they are, but at least I'm familiar with the word. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you know. So if it used the word Medal of Honor, it didn't mean anything. Yeah. I'd never heard of it. I didn't know it existed. So then he handed me a big envelope, big brown envelope, and it had his uh, wax seal on the back of it. Uh, that's how they sealed their letters back at that time. They had a stamp, and they'd put wax on there, and then they'd put this stamp with a letter in it. And of course, his name was Erskine, so in that wax was the letter E, capital E. <clears throat> he handed that envelope to me, and... Uh, uh, this is, you know, you're to take this with you to Washington. Well, I walked outside, back out of the tent, and the colonel was still there, of course, and he saw the envelope, and he pointed to that seal, and he said, don't break that seal. If you do, it's a court-martial offense. <laughs> well, I'm not going to break that seal, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, those my were my orders that were... I was to turn in, showing the people at my next place, which was Hawaii, uh, why I was coming through there and uh, give them the information of who I am and my purpose of going through and all that. So they opened them at Hawaii and found out that I'm supposed to go to Washington to receive the Medal of Honor and here again. If the word was used, I had no idea what it was. They gave me another set of orders and and uh, gave me an airplane ticket to uh, fly to uh, Hawaii. Uh, I'd never been on uh, I'd never been on an airplane. I'd never been even close to an airplane. So. Uh, <clears throat> The, the plane that I flew from Guam to Hawaii was a rather small plane. This plane was a huge thing. It looked to me like I don't even know how it's going to get off the ground. It's so big. But uh, one of my most memorable experiences uh, that I've carried all these years is getting on that airplane with either 48 or 49. I don't remember the exact number now. In fact, I don't know if I ever knew the exact number, of uh, 
Americans that had been prisoners of war, the Japanese, for some of them up to five years. Huh. Uh, men that had one time weighed 170 or 180 pounds now weighed 80 and 90 pounds. Wow. Uh, they looked like skeletons. They really did. Their cheeks were hollow. Their eyes were sunken. You could see every bone in their body. And... Uh, that left the lasting impression on me that I'll, I'll never forget. But they were absolutely the happiest people that I think I've ever seen in my life. So they, they were now free and uh, had not been for all those many years and punished and tortured and harassed and all that sort of thing. And now they're free. <clears throat> so... They are really having a good time of being free. And one of them said to me, in fact, the guy that was sitting beside me, <clears throat> and the reason I got my seat was one of them, when they picked him up to get on the airplane, or when they were getting on the airplane, <clears throat> the guy that was supposed to sit where I was sitting uh, died before he got on the plane. So that left the vacant seat, and they didn't have time to refill it. So that seat was empty, and that's why I got it. And one of the fellows, one of the former prisoners sitting beside me, uh, I finally got him telling me some of the experiences that he'd had. I knew nothing about that. I didn't even know about prisoners of war. I didn't even know Japanese had them. But uh, he was telling me some of the things that they had done to them and their work schedule and that. <clears throat> food and that sort of thing. And then he made a statement I've never forgotten. You will never know what freedom is until you have lost it. I've never forgotten that. What do you remember of meeting President Truman? Uh, I remember everything, you know, you do in the military is alphabetical. Uh, I jokingly say, when I come back in my next life, I'm going to change the alphabet, and we're going to start at Z and go the other way. Give those guys in the uh, X, Y, and Z area a chance to being first. Because <laughs> I was always last. You know? yeah. W, you always last. You have very few Zs in the military. So it's usually Ws that are last to get the chow or get anything get paid or anything. So <clears throat> I'm going to change that. But uh, never dreaming that I would ever see a president, let alone be that close to one. Uh, and they called us up alphabetically. So the program, there were 13 of us receiving our medals. And, of course, they read the uh, citation, and it goes on and on and on. It lasts forever. And by the time they got down to me, I was really a nervous wreck. And when they called my name, uh, my body is shaking. Uh, I guess it's the adrenaline running through my body. I don't know. But my body was shaking, and I could not control it. And so when I walked up to him, uh, he shook hands with me. And then somebody handed him the metal uh, ribbon with the metal on it to put around the neck. 
did that, and then he laid his left hand on my right shoulder and said to me, and I'm not the only one he said this to, but uh, I remember very specifically, uh, I would rather have this medal than to be president. And, wow. Uh, he shook hands with me again and kept his hand on my shoulder. I jokingly said he did that so I wouldn't jump out of my shoes. <laughs> shaking. So my, my body is absolutely shaking. It, it would not be still. So it was an experience, one that you'll never have at one time in life. Yeah. And then... You struggled with, with Pulse Combat Stress until 1962. Yeah. Uh, my, my big problem, principal problem, was I was born and raised in a, in a home that was strict, not mean, not brutal or anything like that, but strict. When, when we were told something, we only were told one time. Uh, we didn't question it. Whatever Dad said to do, that's exactly what we're going to do. That's uh-huh. what he expected. And if you didn't do it, then you would suffer some consequences of it with his belt or a switch or whatever. But I was that's the type of home that I was raised in. And all of there were five of us boys, so we were all raised that way. And certainly taught that you did not kill. Uh, anything of any nature except to uh, kill something for food or to kill something that had injured itself to where it had to be put out of its misery. And you know, like dog would break a leg or uh, a horse would get down to where it couldn't get up and then you would have to you would have to use the extreme and eliminate the misery to, by eliminating the, the animal but that was very strictly enforced I, I can remember we didn't have rifles we had one shotgun in the house and none of us boys had rifles uh, we used other means. I I don't know whether you know what a slingshot is or not. Oh yeah. Okay. I, I grew up on a I grew up on a little farm too. Okay. Well, we had slingshots, and uh, we used inner tubes for our uh, bands on it, and we got pretty good with it. I I I think I would classify myself almost as an expert because I. I shot that thing a lot, and a couple times in my teen years, early teen years, uh, pre-teen, pre-teen years, I should say, pre-teen, eight, nine, ten, long in there someplace, uh, I got caught killing a bird. Uh, It was just something to shoot at, so I shot at it and hit it and killed it and got caught and got a whipping. You don't do that. <clears throat> that bird didn't do anything to you. You had no reason in the world to kill that bird. So you got to pay the price for it. And 
the way I was taught. So then you go to war, and you have to completely do the 380 or a 960 or something. And uh, if you're going to survive, the other guy can't. And there is nothing in my mind more uh, odorous than the smelling of the of a human body. It, it's different than an animal of any kind. It, it's just not the same. And fire people, fire fighters, tell me the same thing. But there is nothing like it. And having to eliminate so many individuals uh, by that means uh, I could just never get rid of them. Uh, I felt uh, I, I just can't be forgiven for that kind of thing and I can't forgive myself. Uh, it was all wrong, every bit of it. And uh, I couldn't accept the fact that I had no choice. Would have had a choice. I could have made a choice. I would have been punished for it, but I could have made a choice. <clears throat> so I just couldn't forgive myself for it. And those were the the flashbacks and the nightmares and that sort of thing that kept bugging me. And '62, I my life changed as a result of of a pastor that opened my eyes that. You can be forgiven. Uh, God's not going to hold that against you because you didn't wantingly do it. Uh, it wasn't a vicious thing that you did. It was something that was in the line of duty. Uh, and perhaps by what you did, you saved the lives of others. So finally I was able to accept that, turn my life around. And so I've, I've kept you here for almost an hour. What would you want you, our listeners to know? What have you taken from your experience? You've experienced more things uh, than most people ever will. You've seen things that, that most people will never have to because of, of the work of, of people uh, like yourself and, and, and many others. What would you want people to derive from your experience? Well, I think we were sent here for a purpose. I believe that... Uh... Uh, there is a divine intervention uh, in life and that we are here for a purpose. Some of us may find that purpose and I believe I did. I think I found that purpose and that was to serve other people. To do for others maybe something they couldn't do for themselves or didn't have the knowledge to do for themselves and by you doing what you did you made their life better so I think well the Lord said uh, God sent him to serve and all of us have that I think that in ingrained in us uh, some of us don't do it or some individuals don't do it but I think it's within all of us a desire to help other people. And I believe that was my purpose. Well, Mr. Williams, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really appreciate it. You're sure welcome, Jonathan. My pleasure. Hope you have a wonderful 2018. I'm still writing 17, but I'll get to it about June. 
<laughs> from 17 to 18. 